Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a chilly WIP day out there. So no matter where you go, take us with you for hot conversation to keep you nice and warm. And when we come back in just a bit, lots to do. So we'll be back after these messages for WIP Time 602. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, and my guest this morning for conversation, Dr. Harold Ullman. Dr. Ullman, Harlan Ullman, I'm sorry. Dr. Ullman is author of the new book, and he's an expert on national security. That new book, Anatomy of Failure, Why Americans Lose... Why America Loses Every War It Starts. Good morning, Dr. Ullman. Peter, nice to be with you at this hour. Thank you. Thank you for getting Especially up. Especially with the Dallas game looming tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. That's a pretty heavy-duty statement you make in the book title, Losing Every War? We start, and there's a subtitle to that, and what we do to make sure we win in the future. I think every American today would say we have the best military in the world, staffed by professionals who are engaged, were dedicated and committed. But when you go back and take a look at our history since the end of World War II, if we were a sports team, we would be in the bottom division. Korea was best a draw. Vietnam was a catastrophic loss, fortunately, with no strategic consequences beyond the deaths of 58,000 Americans and God knows how many Vietnamese. The second Iraq war was a catastrophe. And when we went into places like Grenada or Beirut, or even Libya in 2011 when we didn't know what we were doing, uh, we failed in our missions in using military force. So the people need to know why that was the case and what we can do to make sure that that does not reoccur because, as I said, we do have an outstandingly good military, which is quite a seemingly contradictory statement. Especially since we currently have a president who at least is saying, as far as North Korea is concerned, all kinds of bad things are going to happen if they act up. Well, it's hard to know what Donald Trump really means when he, when he talks about North Korea, because on the one hand, he's going to use fire and fury. On the other hand, he thinks that little rocket man is now a friend and he wants to be able to talk to him. But Donald Trump is emblematic of the issue. If you go back and you ask the question, why have we failed, there are three reasons. First, too often we elect presidents who are just not ready, not prepared, and not experienced enough to become president, even realizing that there is no school for presidents, as Jack Kennedy famously said. Second, when we do badly, it's because we use bad strategic judgment, and that can be for political reasons, it can be for reasons of ideology, campaign promises, you name it. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, when we use force and we, it goes wrong, it's simply because we don't know what we do it, we're doing. We do not have enough knowledge and understanding of the situations in which we use force. And all of these characteristics of failure persist across generations, across political parties and presidents. The same mistakes Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson made in going into Vietnam were almost identical in many ways to the same mistakes that uh, George W. Bush made when he went into Iraq the second time or when Barack Obama chose to use uh, an airstrike in Libya to protect Benghazi and ended up having more Mark Gaddafi killed and Libya fall into civil war. All right, I want to start with perhaps what I think anyway is the grievous example of what you're talking about. How could we hope to win a war in Afghanistan when for so many years Russia couldn't do it? Well, it's not only Russia. <laughs> it was Russia the second time. We should have learned from the Brits 
in the 19th century. They got thrown out of Kabul in 1842. The Russians and then the Soviets in 1979, to, uh, when they were forced to, uh, to leave in uh, 1988. Um, the reason is that when we went in, we were going in to take out al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, and we forgot the mission. And the reason we forgot the mission was, first of all, because the Taliban fell easily, and the Pentagon, and especially the White House, and George W. Bush and his administration were focusing on Iraq. We took our eye off the ball. We let Osama bin Laden get away, and after he did, we decided we were going to democratize Afghanistan, which quite frankly, is simply not possible. We imposed upon them a democracy that was better off for a Western country. But you don't rule Afghanistan from the center. You have to realize that's a tribal country with traditions that go back thousands and thousands of years. We simply didn't know what we were doing. Another failure of knowledge and understanding. And Afghanistan is in the mess it is today. And I'm not sure that uh, the future for Afghanistan is going to be any more pleasant than the past even though I have good, high respect for President Ashraf Ghani, who I know well is the president of Afghanistan. But issues here, presidents made bad decisions based on faulty strategic judgment and had an absence of knowledge and understanding. And all of this, of course, is laid out in great detail in my book, along with personal vignettes that since the Vietnam War have been situations in which I have found myself that I think amplify the arguments and reasons for why we fail. How could we be so stupid, though? Was it simply we didn't see what was before us? Um, look, it was September 11th. The Twin Towers had come down. Americans may have believed that this was like December 7th. And I think because the planning went so quickly, you recall that we really started going into Afghanistan in, in late October with, with Special Forces and CIA. George W. Bush was desperate to do something. And I think George W. Bush at least according to what he has said and what he has written, had an epiphany. And his epiphany was that he could change the world by democratizing the greater Middle East and therefore changing the geostrategic landscape of the region forever by democratizing Iraq. And so Afghanistan was a sideshow. And while the decision to go into Iraq was not confirmed until the summer of 2002, we began planning for Iraq almost concurrently with going into Afghanistan uh, with uh, some in sort of November of 2001, when you recall the Marines finally got into Kandahar. Was he given bad advice or was he just too stupid? The issue wasn't st stupidity. The issue was emotion. Uh, the issue was I have to do something. And from his perspective, first of all, uh, Peter, as I said, knowledge and understanding were lacking. Uh, before September 11th, how many Americans, let's just pick on Philadelphia, knew the difference between Sunni and Shia or the history of Afghanistan? You have to realize that it was um, Alexander the Great uh, 2,000 years ago who was thrown out of Afghanistan and beat a hasty retreat by marrying the daughter of one of the local rulers there. Nobody had any real knowledge of understanding of that. Uh, once the Soviet Union had been evicted in 1988, Afghanistan fell off the radar scope. So we were terribly surprised. The president had to do something. He was given a plan. The plan worked uh, stupendously well initially. And then, as I said, the, the, eye, uh, the eye of the focus of George W. Bush shifted to Iraq, and Afghanistan was going to take care of itself, which it never did. One of the problems simply put, 
it's very difficult for a White House to concentrate on more than two or three critical things at once, and so it did not, and those are some of the reasons why Afghanistan is in the shape it is today. Okay. Um, going back even further into history, let's talk about Vietnam. Where did we go wrong? <laughs> Where did we go right is probably a shorter answer. Um, my book starts out with my first initial experiences in Vietnam, and I should have realized that something was wrong when I went through survival, escape, and evasion school in Water Springs in California in the middle of the winter, 1965-66, where the biggest problem we faced was frostbite. I don't know the last time anybody contracted frostbite in Vietnam, but I'm sure it wasn't any time particularly recently. Um, we then land eventually in Tonsonut, which was the major air base in Saigon, and our only instructions were to call on a field phone that came out of a World War II movie, Tiger 345. So we were abandoned in Tonsonut Airport, my, my crews and myself, for about four hours during a mortar attack, not knowing what to do because nobody was answering on the other side. Now, those are sort of humorous insights into Vietnam. But the fact is we stumbled into Vietnam because John Kennedy wanted to pay any price, bear any burden, Lyndon Johnson had this view of monolithic communism, which was prevalent throughout the United States and the United States government, and he thought if we didn't stop the commies on the Mekong, we'd be fighting them in the Mississippi. We had this notion of dominoes, and we had to stop communism in Vietnam. And we thought, because we were much stronger, not only in terms of our military capacity, but physically, the Vietnamese were relatively small-statured people, that we were going to be able to do this. And as it became more and more difficult, we tried strategies such as search and destroy. We tried to kill our way to uh, victory by the body count, if you will recall, which was the metric of success, how many of them we could kill. And the fact of the matter is we were stuck in a quagmire, and we did not realize that it was the termination, certainly, of the North Vietnamese to unify the country. We didn't realize that there were civil wars going on in the South between factions who did not like the government in Saigon. And so as a result, 58,000 Americans were killed, and the reasons were presidents were not ready for prime time. They exercised poor strategic judgment, and our knowledge and understanding of the circumstances was simply unsatisfactory. The good news is, however, there were no strategic consequences of Vietnam, even though national morale and uh, national psyche were really very much damaged by that incident. You will recall all the, all the civil unrest that was generated by, by uh, the Vietnam War, which still has had repercussions today because I believe the biggest problem the United States faces is not the Russians or the Chinese or the Islamic State. It's failed and failing government. And one of the legacies of Vietnam was beginning the beginnings of eroding the credibility and legitimacy of the government 50 years ago that became exacerbated by Watergate and Richard Nixon's resignation, Jimmy Carter's weakness, on and on and on and on. And so today, 75 or so percent of Americans do not trust their government to do the right thing and do not believe that their children and grandchildren will live better than they do. Uh, this is all a consequence of presidents exercising bad judgment, and it's where we are today. And I outline in the book how we got here and what we can do, hopefully, to make sure that we minimize a failure in the future when we decide to use military force. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, um, an expert on things military, Harlan Ullman, 
author of a new book, a new book on military failures and a whole lot more. My name's Peter Solomon. But Harlan, we spent so much money to get the breast and the brightest to surround the president. They failed too, didn't they? Very interesting. Uh, and this is really important. One of the things I lay out in, in Anatomy of Failure uh, after the war, I got to know Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara quite well, and I had a hate-love-hate relationship with him. And during the time that we had more or less a love relationship, I had this discussion with him saying that, look, you knew, President Kennedy knew, the Americans knew, that the Soviet Union was building down its military. Why did you build it up? Why did you declare a missile gap that didn't exist? Why did you run to the right of, of, of Richard Nixon and Dwight Eisenhower? And McNamara was very straightforward. He said it was the only way we thought we could win. Kennedy had a better war record than Nixon, PT-109. And when he got into office, he was going to carry out his campaign promises, and so he did. And so initially the Americans doubled the size of their nuclear deterrent, uh, made all sorts of improvements to the military forces, initiated the Bay of Pigs in April 1961, which was the failed attempt to invade um, Cuba. And so the reason there, very simply, was a campaign promise. Similarly, President Trump made some campaign promises. Fortunately, he didn't carry out the ones with China, who he branded a currency manipulator, but he's canceled the Trans-Pacific Pact. Uh, he wants to increase military spending hugely, and he wants to kill our way to victory, because what did he say about the uh, terrorists? He said, we're going to kick the shit out of them. And so you have presidential promises. You have sometimes expediency. Uh, sometimes you have ideological views, and sometimes you just have presidents who are misinformed because the right information is stopped at the top. The White House is very, very, very narrow in terms of advisors. Look, Donald Trump, to pick on him for a minute, still relies on Steve Bannon, whose judgment, in my mind, on these issues is really flawed. He still relies on his family and his very close friends who have virtually no experience. And quite frankly, Within his inner circle, uh, his Secretary of State had no government experience. His Secretary of the Treasury had no prior government experience. And even though the Secretary of Defense is enormously qualified, sometimes you have to realize that the Pentagon on one side of the Potomac is literally 10,000 miles away from the White House on the other side of the Potomac. That's the nature of Washington. Proximity counts where your office physically is located sometimes counts, and all these things often band together, and so the president either gets the wrong information or he doesn't get the right information, and often he is affected by advisors to whom he is close in respects but really don't have the best judgment in the world. And that's happened from Kennedy through um, the series of presidents we've had since the last 50 or 60 years. So you're really talking about political expediency, Trump's good judgment? Almost invariably. Now, the one exception is George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush had fabulous advisors. Brent Scowcroft was his national security advisor, had been tutored by Henry Kissinger. Colin Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, and Bush dealt with the end of the Soviet Union, and he made Europe whole, free, and at peace, dealt with the first Iraq war masterfully, drove Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait in a hugely one-sided military victory that restored American credibility, and in many ways was just a great president. And what did he get for his accomplishments? He wasn't even reelected. So when we get somebody in power who knows what he's doing, uh, too often uh, he gets thrust out of office. And then along came 
Bill Clinton, uh, who was not ready for prime time, George W. Bush, who wasn't, Barack Obama, who had minimum experience, and now Donald Trump, who has no experience. And so if you continue to elect presidents, uh, however smart, however able, however charming or articulate they may well be, most of them are unlikely to have the experience of a George H.W. Bush, and that means in the future, unless we take action and I lay out a brains-based approach to strategic thinking and a range of other things, when we use force, even though we may have the best military in the world or have the best military in the world, it may not achieve the accomplishments simply because it's not being used for the right purposes. All right, but George H.W. was severely criticized for not taking the Iraq war all the way to Baghdad. Only by some who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, Bush knew exactly what he was doing. And look, let's, let's, let's step back a minute, Peter. This is an interesting thought game even at 6.30 in the morning. Supposing we did not go into Iraq the second time, and supposing Saddam Hussein or his, or his regime were still in power, uh, the Middle East would not nearly be as unsettled. The Islamic State would never have been created. And who is probably the most influential external power in Iraq today? Iran. Iraq would have been a counter. Remember, they fought, fought a nine-year war. And so in a bizarre way, while the people of Iraq may or may not have been better off, and quite frankly, I'm not sure they would have been better off uh, if Saddam Hussein had not been in power. But if Saddam Hussein were in power, as a whole, the world might be better off today. So I think that George W. Bush, <coughs> H. W. Bush exercised great strategic judgment, <coughs> and his critics really were few in number, and they were obviously proven wrong by history. Hmm. All right. You've talked, you made allusions to some smaller, quote-unquote, wars. Yeah. Grenada. Military Pan interventions. Yeah, military interventions. What were those about? Um, <clears throat> you will recall in 1982, uh, Middle East Lebanon was really uh, beginning its civil war, and Ronald Reagan thought that <clears throat> by putting Marines ashore against the advice of his Secretary of State and former Marine George Schultz, that this could be useful uh, to settle the situation. <clears throat> in October, the Marine barracks were bombed. 241 were killed. And, of course, we had to beat a hasty retreat. Putting them all in one location was very, very foolish indeed. Assigning them there didn't make much sense. But at the same time, we also landed a force in Grenada. Now, the overarching issues with Grenada, which had been a former British colony, were that the Reagan administration accused the Soviet Union of building an air base in Grenada, which it could then use to uh, improve its access and influence in the Caribbean. And it argued that some 200 American students at St. George's Medical School were at great jeopardy because there had been a coup in the country. And so a landing force was assembled that consisted Army, Navy, Marines, um, so forth, and sent to Grenada. The commanding, uh, the commanding officer of the operation, Vice Admiral Joe Metcalf, uh, was pestered by the White House to save the students. Metcalf radioed back to the White House that the students were in no danger, nobody was going to attack them. Worse, it turned out that the air base was not being built by the Soviet Union, but by the Plessy Corporation of Britain, which is a very, very right-wing company that was hostile to the, to the communist uh, theology, and indeed had hired, because they were good capitalists, low-cost wage uh, labor, which were Cubans, 
And Castro insisted that if he's going to send his laborers, he doesn't want anybody to defect, so he sent armed guards to make sure they wouldn't. So the reason he went into Grenada to protect students that were in danger was, <laughs> was impeached by the operational commander, and the notion that the Soviet Union was building a base in Grenada was absolute nonsense. It was the Brits. And indeed, the night before the operation, Maggie Thatcher, then Prime Minister of Britain, called Ronald Reagan and said, Ronnie, I understand you may be invading Grenada. And candidly, in his memoir, Reagan later writes, what could I do? I had no other choice, but I had to lie. Uh, that, to me, is a classic example of not only bad strategic judgment, but a fundamental lack of knowledge and understanding of what we were doing. The same thing was true in Benghazi in 2011. We thought the residents of Benghazi were going to be killed by Gaddafi, so we decided reluctantly to lead from behind and allow attacks to save so-called the residents of Benghazi. In that action, ultimately, Muammar Gaddafi was killed and Libya was precipitated into a civil war. Each one was a circumstance where we didn't have sufficient knowledge and understanding and applied poor strategic judgment, and what happened was something that was turned out to be a failure. Intelligence failures? Intellectual failures. Um, I think our intelligence is pretty good. Uh, I think that some of us knew before the, the second Iraq war that Saddam Hussein did not have weapons or mass destruction of any kind of quantity. But you have to realize that what was called groupthink and the notion that we were going to democratize Iraq made no difference what the intelligence was. George W. Bush and his administration, supported by Dick Cheney, who was vice president, had made the decision that we were going into Iraq, and weapons of mass destruction became a convenient cause celeb as the reason for doing so. I'm sure if it wasn't weapons of mass destruction, it would have been Saddam's violation of uh, human rights or the way he treated his populations or the fact that he had used chemical weapons against Iran during that long war. So it became an excuse, but it had to be done to be seen as really a legitimate exercise. And so, quite frankly, I think the White House stacked the books. And then it was completely uh, reinforced when the then director of the CIA, George Tenet, said it was a slam dunk. And I think Tenet did so for political reasons, because if we had looked much more closely, the major, one of the major pieces of evidence and intelligence to support the argument was somebody called Curveball, who was a, an Iraqi defector. And I think he was the defective Iraqi defector, uh, because he was lying about weapons of mass destruction. In fact, he'd been recruited by the Germans, who subsequently told the Bush administration that they no longer believed Curveball's information, but the White House rejected that uh, input from the German intelligence services. It's awesome to me the mistakes we made out of, I'm sorry, what feels like stupidity. You could say that, Peter. Um, and at the end of the, at, at, when one looks and steps back, you can say this was stupidity. At the time, and this is not an excuse, I think the intentions were probably honorable, but they became let's say, um, affected and, and too heavily influenced by ideology, by expediency, by political campaign promises, or by a simplistic thought or two that we were going to stop the commies on the Mekong. Uh, we did not realize that the communist threat was not monolithic, that the Chinese communists and the Soviet Union really had fundamental differences. Um, 
and we didn't realize that the issue in Afghanistan was dealing with al-Qaeda, and we didn't realize in Iraq um, <laughs> that there were no weapons of mass destruction. So I think this, this was bad judgment, and obviously you can say that that was stupidity, but I think that it's a more sophisticated uh, argument that explains exactly why we went wrong. Uh, but at the same time, for example, selling the American public the weapons of mass destruction argument only at a certain point convinced us that our government lied to us. Of course. And as I said, that has, go, that has started really with the Vietnam War, when the administration lied about the second uh, incident in the Tonkin Gulf when it claimed that two of our American destroyers were attacked by Vietnamese PT boats. They weren't. Um, and too often, as was said about the Vietnam War, too often incidents provide a streetcar in which we can jump. And so we often use sometimes uh, mistaken views or generate false information. But the point is that in 1964, before the Tonkin Gulf incident in August, about 75% of the American public believed the government, believed the government was doing a good job. Today, 75% of the people think quite the opposite. Uh, you see that the popularity ratings of President Trump are at <clears throat> a record low for presidents at this stage, probably around 35 or 36%. And look at Congress. They're in single digits because Americans see a broken government and they don't see anybody really acting to be able to fix it. That was one of the reasons why Trump was elected, to clean out the swamp. <clears throat> but so far, I think he's made the swamp worse. I've been watching segments of Ken Burns' documentary on yeah. Vietnam on public television, and it implies that we had a chance to do it very, very differently had we just paid any attention to Ho Chi Minh? <laughs> uh, I had not seen the entire Ken Burns series, and the first four or five of the uh, serials I saw, I thought there was a problem because they tried to mix uh, elements or view from 50,000 feet with individuals, and I think that that was very, very hard to be able to orchestrate on the screen. Uh, I saw some of the last versions when the war was winding down, and I thought they were much better simply because they could, they could show why we had failed. If you go back to the original talks about the NBN Fu in 1953 when the French controlled Indochina, uh, the French generals believed that by putting a stronghold in the north, they would attract the North Vietnamese and defeat the North Vietnamese in one battle. That would be decisive. It didn't work out that way. They were defeated and so the Geneva talks started about what to do in Vietnam, which led to the division of the country. Ho Chi Minh was there, and John Foster Dulles, who was our Secretary of State, refused to recognize or shake his hand. And the reason was that the Dulleses and much of the Eisenhower administration were violently anti-communist. They believed that Ho Chi Minh was being controlled by Moscow, which was nonsensical. And so as a result, because of these petty ideological views, we made absolutely no effort to try to do any kind of an arrangement with North Vietnam. Uh, once the war was over with the French, they were part of the monolithic Soviet empire, and unfortunately we thought that by cutting them off and isolating them, it would better our interest. And every time we do that, for example, today we don't want to talk to Iran, which is crazy. And so 
That explains, in part, why did we did not do better in Vietnam. We saw this as a zero-sum game. If we don't stop them there, we're going to be fighting them on the Mississippi, which in retrospect, as you say, is stupid. Some people would even use a much more tougher uh, clinical term to describe our actions. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Harlan Oman, author of Anatomy of Failure. He chairs the Killowin Group and advises leaders of government and business in the highest levels. And he's author of the new book, An Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts. Okay, Harlan. Have we ever won a war we didn't start? Absolutely. World War II? World War II. Cold War. We won the big ones. And it's interesting about World War II because we were totally, well, I wouldn't say totally, we were largely unprepared. Roosevelt had been trying to get us engaged in the war. He had started <clears throat> um, plans to be able to send uh, military equipment to the British. We reinstated or we reinstated the draft. And in a series of two laws that began in 1936, the Vincent Travel uh, Naval Rebuilding Act, we had been starting to rebuild our Navy. But we were caught unaware. The country was hugely divided about getting into a second war after the First World War, and the attack in Pearl Harbor on December 7th rallied the public. And all of a sudden, you know, the public, which was against the war, now turned almost as instantaneously as a school of fish and supported the president. Ironically, when we declared war, we only declared war about on Japan, and there was another problem called Hitler. <laughs> Fortunately and gratuitously, two days after Pearl Harbor, Hitler declared war on the United States, which got us out of this problem. But at that stage, the nation was going to be working together. We had virtually no rules or regulations. Everybody was, you had dollar-a-year men who were volunteering to save the country, and it was a different era in which we were able, to, in the space of, three and a half years, believe it or not, to build a navy of almost 6,000 ships, an army of almost 12 million men. We built tens of thousands of aircraft and won World War II, which obviously we did not start. Similarly with the Cold War, the Cold War really was started by Stalin, who was anxious to gain territory in Western Europe to prevent any further invasions of Russia. And so, as you know, he gobbled up much of Eastern Europe and drew the border, the so-called Iron Curtain that was defined by Winston Churchill in his famous Westminster speech um, in Missouri in 1946. Uh, and so, as a result, ultimately, we prevailed in large measure because the Soviet Union was an irrational system that was going to fall of its own weight. But in terms of the wars we start, Vietnam, I would argue, was largely a war that we started and certainly escalated. We lost the second Iraq war. We started. There was no reason to go to war. And in those instances, we failed. In instances where we were forced to react, as in World War II or the Cold War, we did far better. And that's one lesson I would hope that future presidents would adhere to uh, when they assume the Oval Office. Now, interestingly... Donald Trump's instincts were to back off, but you see that he's agreed to increase in force levels in Afghanistan. Uh, he's probably agreeing to a what seems to be a more belligerent policy towards North Korea, and so I'm not sure that Trump 
is really going to stick with his instincts regarding the use of American force. And if that continues, and it appears that using force might be an easy way to solve the situation, and we're not sufficiently well informed, I can pretty much guarantee you that the results are not going to be much to our liking. But what's the difference with World War II? Everybody knew who the enemy was, the enemy was and why we were fighting. Absolutely. Absolutely, Peter. Uh, we were allied. We were, we were, we were unanimously uh, united in that effort, and with good reason. And since then, in many cases, there has not been the same kind of unanimity or indeed the real need to go to war. Even if Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, he wasn't going to use them. I mean, you have to realize that why people get weapons of mass destruction, specifically nuclear weapons, such as Kim Jong-un in North Korea, is because they see what happens when they don't have them. They saw what happened to Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. They saw what happened to Saddam Hussein. And Kim has rightly judged that the only way that I can prevent the United States from doing to me what it did to those two people is to be able to have nuclear weapons, which will be a sufficient of a threat to prevent the United States from taking action against us. Very, very straightforward thinking on their part. Uh, you don't have to say that this guy is a monster or this guy is irrational or crazy because he's neither of those. Indeed, I really wonder who's running North Korea. I wonder if Kim is really much more of a front man than he is an actual leader. But beyond that, what North Korea has done is very rational. And so in my book, Anatomy of Failure, Why America Lose Every War It Starts, my view towards North Korea is that diplomacy and even signing a peace treaty. You will recall we don't have a peace treaty in North Korea. The war was stopped by, a, by an armistice, which is still in place, not a peace treaty. And there are trade-offs that we can make. The North Koreans don't like us exercising with the South Koreans. Well, the South Koreans don't like 20,000 pieces of artillery stationed just north of the DMZ that can destroy Seoul without the need for any weapons of mass destruction. So there are ways that we could make agreements. And what we did with Iran and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon was a spectacular act of diplomacy. And people who say, well, it just gave them 10 years, they could do whatever they want, haven't read the treaty, don't want to understand the treaty, because the treaty puts in place forever a permanent regime of inspection by the International Atomic Energy Agency. That is the centerpiece of the treaty. But the point is, Iran gave up huge amounts in terms of giving up its enriched uranium and giving up its ability to produce plutonium and reducing its centrifuges, which make uranium, by about 90%. And I think that such a negotiation would be possible with North Korea because it's in the best interest of China, North Korea's most important ally, and indeed Russia, for there to be some measure of stability. And so I think talking to Kim through back channels, probably using the notion of a treaty, a peace treaty to end the war, and then taking steps to build confidence to de-escalate the military side of things, very, very smart. But threatening North Korea uh, with fire and fury, uh, to me, isn't very, very helpful, because the fact of the matter is if there were a war in Korea, merely by use of its own artillery and rockets, that are stationed just north of Seoul on the other side of the DMZ, 
in the space of, let's say, less than an hour, the equivalent of several nuclear bombs worth of, of conventional explosives can be deployed against Seoul with a population of 10 million people, with 200,000 Americans living in Korea and some 30,000 American troops. And so as a result, nobody wants a war in North Korea, which would end probably with hundreds of thousands or millions of people being killed, even though ultimately we would win, but at a huge cost. And the entire Korea Peninsula of course. glowing who, in the dark. And who is going to and who is going to and who is going to rebuild it? Look at Syria. Uh, indeed, look at Iraq. Despite oil there, who's going to rebuild it? Lebanon. Um, and so you have all these issues of what comes next once the war is over. And in some cases, uh, nothing comes next except, except more chaos and violence. What's what's the reaction been to the book, Harlan? Uh, it has been hugely positive. I have, uh, I've been very, very lucky and honored to have blurbs by an array, an array of fascinating people. Uh, General Colin Powell, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, former National Security Advisor and former Secretary of State, and John Kerry, former Senator and Secretary of State, all have said it's a must-buy. Uh, Lord Michael Dobbs, who created the House of Cards, uh, even though Kevin Spacey's problems may diminish that book, uh, that uh, series. Um, Mick Dobbs has said that this book is a combination of a Tom Clancy thriller because of the vignettes and insights of my personal involvement uh, with the gravitas of Klaus Van, uh, with uh, Carl Van Clausewitz. Uh, the initial sales have gone exceedingly well, and I think people are very, very interested. I realize that the title is hugely provocative, and it should have had a further subtitle of what do we do to make sure we win in the future. But the last third of the book is about what do we do in order to make sure that we are better in the future than we have been in the past, beginning with a brains-based approach to strategic thinking. But so far, the reception has been exceedingly well. Uh, Amazon and uh, uh, the other booksellers have ordered rather large numbers in advance, which is always a good sign. Any reactions from the Pentagon or the White House? I, I would not expect any. <clears throat> Um, I have had reactions from a number of very senior officers who obviously like the book uh, because it ex makes the case that the Pentagon has been trying to make for a very, very long time, we're talking about decades, in the need of the ability to, strength, to think strategically and <clears throat> what happens when we don't. And so I would say that the, the vast majority of people in the military are very, very supportive of, of the book, certainly in the Pentagon. And I, I, would, I would not want to handicap what uh, General Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, or Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, might say, but I'm sure that they would give that book serious thinking because before it came out and before they were appointed to their jobs, we all had had lengthy conversations about these issues. All right. I'm talking with... My guest this morning, Harlan Ullman, Dr. Harlan Ullman, author of, Anatomy of a, author of Anatomy of a Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts. And it's an amazing book. And Harold, Harlan, I just appointed you Secretary of Defense. What would you do? <laughs> I'd go on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> run, run! Um, the two biggest threats the Pentagon faces are not 
Russia or China or the Islamic State. They are imposed by us, and they're not really the fault of the Pentagon. Let me emphasize that. The first is internal, uncontrolled, or even uncontrollable cost growth of about 5 to 7% in real terms, everything from people to precision weapons to pencils. What this means is that in 10 years, those costs will double, and we can't afford them. It also means that out of a defense budget of, say, $600 billion a year, unless we spend 30 40 or $50 billion a year, we can't keep up. The second problem is that we have a management oversight budgetary, budgetary process that is not only Frankensteinian, it had to be made by the KGB of the Soviet Union because nobody with a rational mind would ever impose on any organization such idiocy. The Pentagon has not had a budget in I don't know how many years, three, four, five years. Neither has the U.S. government. We've been working on continuing resolutions. That would mean, um, Peter, if, if you have a certain amount of money to run your show, you don't know how much that money was, and you're not going to get it until the year is half over. It couldn't work. We have oversight and regulation that is excessive by 20% or some huge figure. I'll give you one example about the insanity of the system. The U.S. Army was required to spend about $200 million to write a proposal for a new handgun. Now, handguns have been around for 500 years. The chief of staff of the Army, General Mark Milley, noted very, very satirically before Congress that if he could use that $200 million, he could buy at least two handguns for every member of the U.S. Army. But that was a regulation, a requirement that was imposed upon the military. So now you have a military which is given all these requirements in terms of operations. It's being stretched thin. It's not getting enough money to do what it's supposed to do. And on top of that, the whole process by which the Department of Defense is managed and uh, oversight is supplied is irrational. So what would I do? The first thing I would do would be to take a look at the operational requirements, what the likely budgets are, and the numbers of forces I have. And I basically have three choices. One, do nothing. And if I do nothing, that will lead to a hollow force, which is what happened after the Vietnam War during the build-up, build-down. Second, I can say to Congress, you guys have to spend $800 billion a year and increase it every year to have the military you want. Well, there's no way that's going to do happen. You have the Budget Control Act, which limits the amount of spending. Or third, I can say, okay, I'm going to take a hard look because the requirements, the size of my forces to fill those requirements and my budgets are way out of whack. So I can do two things. I can maintain a force which is going to be smaller, but it's going to be less ready, that is less capable. Or I can have a much smaller force that's going to be very ready and very capable. So if I say go to war tomorrow, it can go to war tomorrow. Those are the two choices I have. But no matter what choice I make, I have to realize that if I don't do something, I'm going to have a hollow force, and that is untenable. Further, I would deal with Congress and say, look, the number of regulations and rules we have are absolutely unacceptable, and what we have to do is streamline and codify or codify and streamline them and reduce them to the point that where they are workable. Because if I can't get a handle on uncontrolled internal cost growth, 
and I can't fix the management system, no matter what I say I do or, or do, I'm going to be overwhelmed by these bureaucratic requirements. So the first thing, as Secretary of Defense, I would do would be absolutely candid and present the options to the American public and then say, my preferred option is a much smaller but affordable force. This is what it is. This is what it's going to take. But if we don't do it, we're going to be in big trouble. That's my prescription if I were Secretary of Defense. Hmm. And no White House would want to tolerate that, by the way, because that would upset the boat. And basically what the Secretary of Defense will be told, do the best you can. We're going to be helpful. You know, the president has already claimed a great victory because uh, the, the, both houses, of, of both committees of the armed services and the Senate and the, and the House of Representatives have approved the $700 billion defense budget, which is really the minimum we need. But even though they've approved it and he can sign it into law, that's not the budget. That's not what we're going to get. We'll probably get something closer to 600 because of the arcane way that we legislate in this country. And so you can say we're putting a lot more money in defense. The fact of the matter is we're not, and most presidents do not want that to become a big issue because they've got far more problems, the tax code, health care, making sure the economy works. And so even though defense is vitally important because the Defense Department is basically the best-run branch of the U.S. government, um, it gets a lower priority, a priority, ironically. And I will say this, I am astounded favorably that the Defense Department runs as well as it does, because if I were a very, very senior officer, I do not know how I can put up with the nonsense that's being inflicted on me and what the future looks like if we don't take corrective action. So my admiration for officers and enlisted and civilians in the U.S. military is huge because they are working under the most onerous circumstances, and I would hope the American public would recognize that uh, and really understand that something has to be done if we want to avoid a hollow force. Worst-case scenario, what's likely to happen if we don't fix it? Uh, the U.S. military will become hollow. It will be unready, uh, and that will be a huge misfortune. Is that an existential threat? No. I think that the reality is that if we don't take action as a country, uh, the future is going to be far less pleasant for our uh, successor generations, Peter, because standards of living will decline. The differences between rich and poor are going to grow, and America will not be in the future necessarily the land of opportunity that it was in the past. That is not an existential threat of the of Nazi Germany or of a nuclear war, but it is of a United States in the future that's not any longer the country that it once was, and that would be a huge pity, but I don't think that's going to affect you or me. And if we get one thing from reading your book, what do you want us to get? Hold politicians accountable and demand of them taking sensible steps in which they are well-informed and which they use good judgment. That's simple. Amen to that, sir. Thank you. And I'd like to say thank you to my guest this morning, Dr. Harlan Ullman, author of the new book, Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts. It's been an enlightening interview, and I wish the book well. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a very chilly WIP day out there. So no matter where you go, take us with you. 
because there'll always be hot conversation no matter what the temperature. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. Thank you to this morning's producer, Caesar, and to Ann Tideman Solomon, the associate producer, for joining us this morning. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.